everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the FearCast. This is the podcast dedicated to OCD, anxiety, anxiety spectrum disorders, and getting your life back. I am Kevin Foss. I'm your host. I'm a licensed clinician specializing in the treatment of OCD and anxiety disorders. Um, and thank you all for joining me for this episode today. Oh, boy, this was a fun uh, episode. So on this episode, I was joined by Dr. Clygett Woods, and I'll tell you a little bit about her in a moment. Um, but uh, for those of you who are new to the show, this is a question and answer based podcast where you, the listener, get to send me, the therapist, questions about OCD, anxiety, and anxiety disorders, um, and, uh, and and how you can work with it, how you can uh, uh, challenge it. Uh, maybe you're a family member who wants to know more about it. Have a, maybe you have a specific question about um, how to support a family member or how to show a family member that you are uh, on their team and how to push them in the right direction as best you possibly can. I don't know. But uh, if you have questions, you can go over to fearcastpodcast.com and you can uh, uh, send me a question through the website. Click on the submit a question link there and you can send me a message. Now, again, uh, if you, um, two things about that. If you would like to send me an audio question, you can record it on your phone. You can record it via Instagram. With Instagram, you can send it to me directly at, at fearcastpodcast uh, uh, through Instagram or you can uh, uh, copy that audio. You can upload it to uh, uh, Google Drive or something like that. Send me the link to the shared Google Drive or send me the audio itself. Send it to questions at fearcastpodcast.com. I'll get those and I'll put those at the top of the list. We have a, we have a quite a backlog right now, but um, if you send me the, uh, the audio, I'll uh, kick that to the top of the list. Also, if you have a success story that you would like to share, I would love to put those um, on a future episode. So you can go over to fearcastpodcast.com and uh, in the submit a question link, there's going to be a drop down menu. You can put, you can select rather a uh, success story. Tell me what's been going on. Tell other listeners what happened for you, what worked, and, uh, and, and, and what, what has success looked like for you in this process. We all want to know what it sounds like for you uh, and to show that recovery is indeed possible. So, all right. So, um, so a little bit of my, a little bit about my guest, and then I've got a little bit to add uh, uh, just before we get into the interview. So, first, Dr. Clygett Woods is a clinical psychologist providing assessment and individualized treatment for adults with OCD and anxiety-related disorders. She is an adjunct professor of clinical psychology with the University of Ottawa and is a director of Changing Minds. Uh, Dr. Clygett Woods is a proud member of the IOCDF's Faith-Based Task Force, which is uh, a, a group dedicated to bringing awareness and education to the religious community about OCD and increasing access to to evidence-based care. So on this episode, uh, Dr. Clagett Woods joined me to talk about kind of OCD therapist pet peeves. Um, and, and these are pet peeves that ultimately just undermine or needlessly complicate treatment. Now, the two main issues we talked about were the differences between feedback, information, coping messages, and support within the OCD treatment. Now, we also talked about overdoing exposures and how that can lead to setbacks and misunderstandings of the goals of ERP. So these are kind of, maybe, maybe they might be a little um, talking shop and hopefully it's not too dry, but we talked about kind of what these can look like in successful ways and what these can look like in, in, in undermining sort of ways. Um, now, hang out to the end of, uh, of the interview because we, we did the whole chat we shut it down and then we had a brief chat afterwards and we realized that kind of the stuff that we were talking about to debrief the conversation actually should be added in. So I'm going to tag that to the very end. What we were talking about mainly was was kind of a difficulty in semantics when it comes to treatment. So you'll you'll hear you'll hear Dr. Clagett Woods and I have a kind of a a, a a little bit of a disagreement or a, a little bit of a, a push and pull over over kind of the, the meaning of reassurance and the way that reassurances can be used. Um, now you'll hear at the end of our conversation we chat. Uh, just a, a little bit more about how ultimately we're, we're kind of using the same words or kind of get it. We're ultimately getting to the same point, but we might be using slightly different words that some people may find problematic and some people it may resonate a lot more. So in particular, I was using the word reassurance. Now, I use the word reassurance. We've talked about it all here as reassurance can kind of be, as I call it, the four letter word of, of OCD treatment. But there, there are things that are reassuring 
that are not reassurances, what I call big R reassurances, right? They're kind of little R, they're reassuring, they're reassurances, but they are not problems unless they become problems and then they graduate to big R. One of the one of the ways that this is also seen, and we may have talked about this before on a previous episode, but um, a similar concept where semantics can really get um, really put into play is within acceptance and commitment therapy. So we talk a lot about in acceptance and commitment therapy that we need to accept our experience. We need to accept all the thoughts, all the feelings that we have as just things that are there. Now, some clients, some people can get caught up on that term, accept. Well, I don't want to accept these thoughts. I don't want to accept this feeling. I don't want to accept the possibility that my worst fear is true, right? What what they are hearing in the word accept is I need to I need to give it the thumbs up. I need to approve of it. I need to perhaps even like it, right? And they and they get stuck on that point. So we've actually shifted the word acceptance to acknowledgement for some of those folks. So we can acknowledge the thoughts, feelings, images, sensations, and urges that we're having, right? We don't have to like them. We don't have to love them. But we do have to acknowledge that they are present, right? It's the same thing as accepting it as a as a reality of your present moment. Not a, not as the truth of the content, but we are accepting it as present. But we can accept, we can acknowledge. Ultimately, there are therapists out there, I am certain, who are going to jump down my throat about how, no, we need to use the word acceptance, or no, we need to reserve uh, reassurances as a magical term for a specific reason. I, in the room, and I think this is going to be the case for a lot of therapists, I don't really care. I don't really care if I use the word acceptance or acknowledgement in that case. If it's if that's the word, if my client in, in the room is going to get going to get in a fight with me about uh, uh, about uh, the word acceptance, great. I'm not going to use it. If we want to call it armadillo, let's call it armadillo. I've done things similar in the past. It's it's how are we going to use this term for more functional use? How can we get how, what terms can we use to actually bring someone forward towards their fear outside or uh, past and or through uh, 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 avoidance or through through and away from compulsive behavior? Does that make sense? So so we we have a, a bit of a brief discussion about that at the very end. So um, feel free to hang out um, to, to hear that piece at the very end. So without further yammering on my part, here is my chat with Dr. Cliget Woods. All right. Well, welcome, Dr. Cliget Woods. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Fearcast to talk about, um, as you and I kind of talked about a little earlier, kind of some therapist pet peeves or some pet peeves that can be had within the world of, uh, of OCD and anxiety treatment. But um, we wanted to touch base to talk about some things that people, people, clients, therapists do within within treatment that that people think are going to work, that they want to work, that want to be helpful, but ultimately are just kind of shooting ourselves in the foot. So we just wanted to uh, shine a light on some of this stuff and then try to point people in a more reasonable direction. So thank you so much for joining me today. (laughs) Sounds about right. Okay. So, so when you, when you and I had spoken about this a little early, you, there, there was there was one thing in particular that really had uh, jumped off the page for you or was was really on your mind. It was kind of in, in, in the world of, 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 of reassurance. As you and I know, reassurance in the world of OCD is kind of a four-letter word. Um, but not, not all reassurance is the same. Not, a, not everything is reassurance and not everything is bad reassurance. I'm curious. Yeah, can, I mean. Yeah, go ahead. Basically, right? Like. I'm working with clients. I am working with other clinicians. They're kind of developing their footing, particularly in treating OCD. And everyone is obviously like very cautious at not providing reassurance or not getting reassurance, right? Like it's a major focus because we know that it is important, an important piece to cut out in treatment. However, what I often see happening is people are over attributing reassurance to things, right? So something 
something as basic as information that they didn't already have. It's like, oh, I don't know if I should give that to them because maybe that'll be reassuring, right? Or if somebody is, you know, kind of saying to themselves some kind of coping thing, right? Like, this is hard, I can do this. Oh, shoot, that's reassurance, you know? Or it's like, I'm doing something for the first time, kind of really not sure how that went. Like, I think it was okay, but I'm looking for some feedback. Can't give you feedback, that's reassurance, Mm. right? Like, so it can get rather pervasively attributed to many things that are not actually reassurance. Mm. Is it, it would be helpful to talk about what specifically is, or what, well, what, what is wrong with reassurance? Why would we not want to give reassurance to somebody who's asking for reassurance? I mean, in OCD or even like the anxiety disorders more broadly, it's an attempt to find 100% certainty where it doesn't actually exist, right? There is very little that we can be, if anything, that we can be 100% certain about, but that is what the mind is demanding within OCD or other anxiety-related disorders. And so reassurance undermines the treatment in terms of our goal is to tolerate uncertainty right to allow ourselves to be to feel uncertain whereas reassurance undermines that goal right keeps us kind of stuck in the expectation the belief the goal that we can be 100 certain about something so that's why we avoid it right to help people learn to tolerate uncertainty and acknowledge that certainty doesn't actually exist kevin you married i am yeah is your wife alive right now I, I spoke with her about about five seconds before I came in to talk to you, so I assume yes. Yeah, but, but, I mean, that's but, not my question. My question is, is she alive right now? Uh, I, I, and I, I don't know. Right? Like, you've got a reasonable, it's like, yeah, probably, but I guess I don't know for sure unless I've got my eyes on her. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's kind of in not giving people reassurance. Again, we are helping them to learn and come to terms with the fact that you can't be 100 percent certain about anything. Right. Right. I think it's an important thing. It's it's but it's it, it, it's hard to do, especially when we see someone who's in pain. We see someone who's struggling. And gosh, it just seems like, you know, that's that's what we do as people. Right? Why wouldn't we give someone information? Why wouldn't we give someone that that sense of confidence or certainty if it would just be so easy? I'm playing devil's advocate here. I don't know if you can tell. I feel like you already know the answer to this, Kevin. <laughs> but, yes. And I'm going to come. You said the word information. I want. We're going to come back around to that. Ooh, okay. But in terms of why you wouldn't give reassurance, again, right? Like it fosters a a belief in 100% certainty that is not actually possible. It is time limited, right? When you get reassurance, feels good for a minute, maybe an hour, and then you need more again. And then you need more and it builds and builds and builds and grows. So for these reasons, right, this is why therapists and clients alike are massively focused on making sure that they don't give or try to get reassurance, right? It becomes a very important, as important as any other ritual prevention. Um, But reassurance is one that people very much latch onto. And it's like, I've got to make sure I never give this, or I've got to make sure I don't get it. Mm -hmm. So, so you, I, you identified some real specific, at least here you identified four specific and possibly different things feedback information coping messages and support right right because as you were saying a second ago you know it's like how could you deny somebody something that would make them feel better mm-hmm. you know when i tell my folks like there is a difference between emotional support and a reassurance that something is certain that we actually have no idea about right like i can be sitting with you and seeing like hey i see that you're a lot in a lot of pain right now right like how can i help mm-hmm you know, and that is different than sitting with the person saying, no, of course you didn't offend anyone or no, of course, nothing bad is going to happen because we don't actually know the answers to those questions ever. But I can sit with you and say, hey, I see that you're in pain. I'm here for you. So, yeah, and there's a there's a vast difference between those two things as well. Right. One is saying, how can I emotionally support you, emotionally encourage you? but not tell you that everything's all right. I think sometimes we, we as humans see that as, as, being, as, as being the same thing, right? I'm going to give you that reassurance. You'll go, oh, 
okay, I feel better. And we think that's supporting. But within the world of OCD, the rules are a little bit different. Um, and support can be acknowledging that the, the emotional component. I mean, Lisa, I, I tell a lot of the families that I work with who are trying to support and encourage their loved one going through treatment. When we support them, it can be acknowledge the emotional discomfort they're in, acknowledge the struggle that they're going through, acknowledge the pain that they have, but we don't need to validate the fear into it, uh, unto itself or to t- rescue them from that feeling. But to say, yeah, it does suck. Oh, it sucks so hard. But we're getting through it in a sense. And I mean, that is, again, like whether you have OCD or whether you're just, you know, a human, basically it's learning that you can be supportive without being reassuring. Um, And people even get tripped up on that, right? Like, so I was talking to one of my clients and again, somebody who is so dedicated to his recovery, right? He has gone through his course of treatment, done very well, is in the relapse prevention phase and is very, you know, kind of concerned that even a little bit of reassurance is going to send him spiraling back down. And so, you know, it's like he and I are having a conversation and he's like, oh, you know, trying, working really hard on not getting reassurance. And, you know, it's like, I think I slipped up last night and I'm like, okay, what happened? He's like, well, I was talking to my wife about like, you know, thoughts that I've been having trouble with and, you know, she's providing me encouragement to face them. It's like, sorry, what's reassuring about this? (laughs) He's like, well, like, you know, she was trying to make me feel better. And again, that's something that I've heard from other people. It's Mm -hmm. like, well, if it's something that makes me feel better, then it's reassurance. Mm -hmm. Right? Like people have actually said those words to me. If it makes me feel better, then it's reassurance. Right. And and yeah, I suppose that is coming from a, quote, a good student perspective, right? They've this person has internalized the ideas of what we're trying to get at here of not trying to get reassurance. That's great. But I, I guess help help listeners understand what is what is okay about the type of support that this client's wife was providing mm-hmm. right so i mean again specifically reassurance mm-hmm. is an attempt to find certainty where none exists mm-hmm. right support is helping somebody to feel understood right kind of standing with them in their pain looking for how you can help them move forward or even if you're the person that is suffering right like feeling less alone mm-hmm. right feeling less alone does not give you reassurance that what you're afraid of isn't going to happen it just means that you are not walking alone mm-hmm. right and so even um somebody else mentioning to me it's like well you know like my parents are acknowledging to me that like these thoughts are difficult right they're difficult to acknowledge they're difficult to accept you know many people have intrusive thoughts that they have shame about and he, you know, identifies this as reassurance. <laughs> and it's like, unless it is compulsively turning into, it's like, are you sure other people have thoughts like this? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, it is absolutely okay to be reminded that you are not alone. Right. I, there's there's a, a big difference between those two as well. And I think it's, it, we've touched on it, but it's, it's the difference between intentionally seeking it out and then inadvertently getting it. Or uh, maybe unintentionally getting is the right way to say it. But it can be, are, are you seeking that information to scratch an itch or to get something out of it? As opposed to, sometimes the universe or people or TV shows or something kind of give us reassurance, kind of give us information in, in, in two, two questions that we have had, but we didn't seek it out. It just came to us. What do we do with those? I don't know that there's a straightforward answer to that question, right? In terms of like when the universe gives us reassurance, we can either, you know, it's like probably the unhelpful thing to do would be to latch onto it, to remind ourselves of it, you know, to kind of, kind of you know, it's like, okay, this is why everything is going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Or when life gives us something reassuring, it can be, all right, here is a reminder that my mind isn't necessarily right about all the things that it tells me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, just because, you know, it's like this piece of this reminder that I have received from the world 
can be used as it's like, oh yeah, kind of anchoring me again in how my loud, boastful mind is all talk. Right. I, so, I mean, it, yeah, it, for that example specifically, I mean, I think there's a little bit more context, but when that happens, right, you can use it in an unhelpful way. You can use it in a helpful way. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I typically would advise my clients that if they like if, if if someone inadvertently or unintentionally gives us reassurance. Great. You got one for free. We're, we're not going to question it. We're not going to lean into it. You don't need to do any do it, do anything extra to reinforce it to yourself. You, you, you kind of got one up on the universe then. All right, cool. But we, then we move on, right? We put it, put it in our back pocket and we use it for what we use it for. And then we, we move on. Right. Well, and similar to that, right? Like it sounds like even there is an expectation that I can 100% eliminate reassurance from my life. Nope. Right. It's like, well, if you can't get 100% certainty, you probably can't eliminate reassurance 100% of your time. Right. Right. And gosh, I, I'm, 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 I, I'm hearing in that client that you talked about almost the, well, not almost, it's, it's a fear of them failing their treatment, right? Almost like mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're having that second layer of obsession, which is, you know, the obsessing about obsessing. Oh no, I can't do anything that's going to make me, make me backslide on my treatment because wouldn't that be the worst, mm-hmm. right? Well, right. then exposures might be, you might ruin your, you might ruin your treatment, in which case it, it, having not thought about it fully, I might just start giving them reassurances and just see if they're going to backslide. Yeah. I mean, that is something it's like, you know what, if relapse is what your mind has currently latched onto that you're trying so hard to avoid, maybe do a ritual on purpose just to stick it to that, to that thought. But like, and I'm coming back to what we're saying here again, right? Like, yes, the making sure that there is 100% avoidance of reassurance all the time, I mean, is A, impossible, right? Because as you mentioned, life will randomly give us reassurance at times, but B, can be detrimental as well because people are cutting themselves off from things that they actually need, right? Such as support, Mm -hmm. such as reminders that they can cope with things, such as information about things or situations that they don't actually have. Right. That that idea of... um reminders of coping um what what can that sound like what is what are some ways that someone can be reminded of their coping especially as we're kind of you know we're, we're talking a lot more about the inhibitory learning model and and a lot of that is learning that we can deal with the stress that comes our way mm-hmm. um but that's part of that fear right what if i can't handle this one how do, how do we in a reasonable way re- remind ourselves or reflect upon or hold tight to the reality that we can deal with stress in a non-reassuring, the, the four-letter word version of reassuring, reassure ourselves that we don't need the reassurance? Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe this is only periphery, per, peripherally related to what you're asking here, but when it comes to coping, mm-hmm. what I tell my people is, this thing that you are telling yourself, mm-hmm. does it move you closer, to, excuse me, closer to or further away from the thing that you are afraid of, mm-hmm. from the thing that is hard, right? If you're telling yourself, I can do this, right? If you remind yourself, it's like, I am stronger than I tell myself that I am or that I believe to be. Does that bring you closer to doing the thing that's hard mm-hmm. or does that you bring you further away from distress, Right. Right. And so classic example, right? I am going in and I'm going to touch a tarantula, you know, big exposure for me because spiders suck. But it's like if I'm going into that and it's like, okay, I can do this. I've got this. Right. Does that give me any kind of reassurance about Uh the situation or does it help me approach something that's hard? Ooh, I like this distinction. What I I love that. I think really early on in my treatment or my treatment, my my training, I would have been told, "Don't say those things." But there there is something to be said about the 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 go get 'em tiger, the attaboys, the 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 things that are encouraging because that's that is encouraging. This and there are some colloquial things that people say, right? I got this, right? 
I got this can be, it's all going to work out perfectly and I'm going to be safe. It can also be, you know what, we'll see how it goes and I'm probably going to get this, but it, it could fail, but I'm going to do it anyways. You know, I think it's some of some of looking at what those self-encouragement statements are, are, are important and, and for a for a client to really reflect on and be honest with themselves. Like, are they doing this? Which, which, which attaboy is it? Right. Or yeah, which right? I guess this. Exactly. It's like, what is the function? Yes. What is the function of what you are telling yourself right now? Is it to get closer to, to motivate your, yourself to do something hard mm-hmm. to get closer to taking a step further on where, you know, towards where you want to be, or is it again? Yeah. To it's like kind of, either bully yourself or white knuckle yourself or convince yourself that nothing bad is going to happen. Right. Like what is the function of what you are saying? Right. Right. And yeah. So yeah, I I think we're getting at here is being, being honest with yourself about what, what you're trying to get at with that statement. But yeah, statements like that can be, can be great. I got this. Yeah. Yeah, You do got this. Yeah. Right. Like, and whether it's something, you know, like reminding yourself, it's like, I can do this. I can do hard things. You know, it's like that old classic, you know, like bravery is not the absence of fear, whatever is kind of your anchor to help move you towards something or whether it is the Rocky theme song, Mm -hmm. right. The motivating thing that moves you towards the hard thing, right. That has nothing to do with reassurance. Mm -hmm. Right. The, the, the big R four letter word version of reassurance. I mean, is there another definition of reassurance? Um, I think there, there, I, I kind of view the difference between like the big R reassurances and little R kind of in, in there are things that are reassurances, big R that are the things that we ought not to be doing in OCD land. But then there are things that are reassurances that are things that are reassuring. Right, that are, and I maybe I'm using this that word a little loosely, but reassuring in terms of things that we, skills that we have, skills that we know that we're going to be able to do, things like you know, anxiety is going to spike and it's going to suck and it's going to hurt and it's eventually going to come down. That can be reassuring, but it's not a reassurance that everything is going to turn out okay, because we all know that anxiety will eventually come down and that can be one of those things that gets us one step closer. Now, these reassurances, little r reassurances, can be a sticking point from person to person. I see that knowing smile. You've got a smirky smirk happening. Go ahead. I've got two things. Those Go little ahead. r's can become big r's. Absolutely. Right. And I think probably what you are describing is these kind of like things that we know. Mm-hmm. I would probably just more describe as it's like information that I know to be true that I am learning. Yes. Right. That I am learning on an emotional level. It's like logically, yes, I know that distress cannot stay perpetually high. Mm -hmm. I don't really emotionally believe that yet, but I am learning that through my experience. Right. And that's, you know, and again, oh, what's that? And that's the stuff that we hang our hat on as we step into the fire. Yeah. And again, like I come back to the information is not reassurance in that, again, like particularly in the developing clinicians, right? It's like, I don't, let's say we have somebody that has sexual obsessions, for example, right? And it's like, well, I don't really want to tell them about how arousal works because, you know, that's, that can be reassuring. And it's like, no, that is actually important for someone to know about how arousal works in the body. Mm -hmm. Right. Why you might misinterpret anxiety as arousal. Mm -hmm. Again, any information can be used as reassurance. However, does that mean that we don't give people information? Right. Right. And I've I have heard it called and I, I will refer to them as one and done reassurances. And I suppose what we're kind of talking about is like one and done information. Right. You can tell this person something once, but once they keep asking the question, well, now it turns into a reassurance very quickly. Yeah, yes. exactly. When when I'm in session, I tell people explicitly, it's like, I'm going to tell you this one time. Mm-hmm. If you ask me again, I'm going to be like, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, but but that's the whole point of it, right? We, we can give someone a little bit of, of reassurances. And I think in, in treatment land, to this exact point, there will be more reassurances on the front end of treatment than as you continue to go on. There ought to be. For, for folks who are not working with a 
OCD therapist, they may get some reassurances as you're referring to at the front end of things about what treatment is, what arousal is, what you know, what is and is not safe. But then that is very quickly going to taper off, whereas they may be working with someone who's not an OCD therapist who's going to continually go over that information. And that, yes, go ahead. No, I was going to say, but see, this is where I would correct what you're saying in that, you know, it's like those early sessions, you're saying it's like you're getting some reassurances and it's Mm -hmm. like, no, I would say those early sessions, you're getting information. Okay. Right. It's like you're getting information about the natural course of emotions, Mm -hmm. right? How emotions peak and then they fall. Mm -hmm. You're getting information about how, you know, like OCD is the maintenance cycle, mm-hmm. right? How that cycle works. You are getting information potentially, yeah, again, like about how the misattribution of arousal, right? Mm-hmm. Anxiety misinterpreted as arousal. Mm-hmm. But those, I, like, I don't call that reassurance because right. it's not repetitive. It's mm-hmm. information that the person didn't have before. Mm-hmm that you know is being provided to them for the first time so this is what i'm saying it's like this is different than reassurance even in an example that i heard recently um somebody's somebody had a client who was transitioning to residential mm-hmm. and this client asked should i bleach my toothbrush before i go mm-hmm. and the clinician kind of reached out because she was like well i don't know like i don't want to provide them reassurance but, you know, that this is objectively dangerous, you know, should, should I tell this person that it's dangerous? Mm-hmm. And it's like, yes, absolutely. Because communicating the information that something is dangerous is not reassurance. It is telling them not to do something dangerous, right? That is information. Mm. Right. So that falls along with that one and done, perhaps. Right. Mm-hmm. right. In so, that example, it's like, I'm going to tell you, it's like, no. Bleaching your toothbrush is a terrible idea. I'm not telling you that, you know, it's like, well, if you bleach your toothbrush, you're going to die. Or if you don't bleach your toothbrush, that means the contamination that you're afraid of is safe. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying this is a dangerous thing that I advise you not to do. Right. So how would you how would you guide perhaps family members in that situation? If they, if a client is asked or a loved one is asking their family and friends questions like that, what can they do? What can they say that is going to be helpful? Do you mean like a dangerous question or what kind of question are you thinking? Uh, maybe, maybe this exact question or a similar question. Because yeah. if the family member, like if the client is mm-hmm. asking your family member, like, should I bleach my toothbrush? Mm-hmm. Is there anything wrong with family saying that's a terrible idea? Are you asking me that question? I am. Is there anything wrong with family coming out and saying that's a terrible idea? I could come up with a scenario in which that would be a bad idea. One, one, they've asked that question before. They've asked a very, very, very similar question. They constantly are asking about bleaching. Um, Two, in a sense that if they are, mm, I had a good second one and it's gone out of my head. But no, but to your first point, too, right? Like, sorry, that is a very different scenario than I was imagining, mm-hmm. which is just like, I'm about to go do this. Um, just checking, you know, it's like, do you think this is a good idea? Right. And it's like, no, it's not, <laughs> which is very different kind of from what you, what you just described here of, you know, it's like something I'm asking repetitively, some kind of, you know, gain. I don't know exactly what the gain would be for asking that kind of question, but uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it's again, what is the function of asking the question? In my mind, it was, you know, kind of like confirming that I should bleach my toothbrush. Right. But in your example, it sounds like there was a different function. Right. There, there may be a compulsive function, but, um, but yeah, to, to that, to that end, it's still, yes, things like these are, are, are dangerous. It's, you ought not to do those things. And I think it comes down to, again, if you are, it, if, are we trying to get them closer to taking risks and moving forward with their life? Or is this this thing that's just confirming that feared story over and over again? And saying that that mm-hmm. thought is worth paying attention to. I, I would ultimately say no. Is there... So I guess we've touched on feedback information, coping messages, and support. Is there anything else that you'd want to add to those or expand? I don't on? think we've touched on feedback. <gasps> okay. Let's right, talk because about feedback. again... What's that? Let's talk about feedback. Yeah, right? Like, okay, after you and I have this conversation, mm-hmm. right? 
and I say, Hey, like, how do you think that went? You know, I've never done a podcast with you before. Mm-hmm. I mentioned it's like I have done podcast one podcast previously, but that was with a close colleague. Uh-huh. You know, so after we are done this podcast and I say, hey, how do you think that went? Mm-hmm. You could tell me. Terrible. Terrible. Caitlin. No, you could say, oh, Caitlin, I'm not right. going to give you reassurance. Right. Mm-hmm. Or you could say you could give me some concrete feedback about, you know, either how you think it went from your perspective Mm -hmm. or a way that I might be able to improve in the future. Right. Like, again, reassurance gets repetitive. Mm -hmm. But in terms of feedback, like I'm doing something I've never done before. Right. And so it is not a reassurance driven process to get feedback after having done something new. Right. That first time. The first time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. It's like, yes, I am teaching a class at the University of Ottawa right now. Mm -hmm. And after after my first class, you know, kind of saying it's like, hey, how do you guys think this went? You know, after my first ever class, heck, after my first course, you know, there's the evaluation at the end of the year where the students give you feedback on how they think you did. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And for the record, you're not necessarily getting a bunch of reassuring things because again, reassurance is also asking a question, looking for a particular answer. Right. And when you're asking for feedback, you're not looking for a particular answer. You're just looking for feedback. Open to all, all bits of information. Exactly. So again, it's like, what is the function? Mm-hmm. Right. Am I trying to kind of like, am I asking for this feedback because I just want to make sure that I didn't defend anyone? And it's like, Kevin, do you think I said anything offensive after our podcast? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, yeah, okay, I could see, I don't really see the utility in answering that question, Caitlin. And again, like, okay, never done this before. How do you think it went? And again, I'm not looking for a specific answer. Maybe I'm hoping that you'll say it was awesome, but mm-hmm. I'm open to any and all feedback that you would provide. Right. Right. And, and fee- feedback is it, feedback is certainly necessary, especially for going back to inhibitory learning. That's kind of what we're doing. We're looking at the feedback of what our experiment was and then seeing what worked, what didn't, and then what we can, how we can use that as a springboard into, the, into expanding on that into whatever mm-hmm. the next exposure is going to be. But yeah, we reflect on that feedback. But I, I think there's there's also that, back to that one, that client example you you, you gave. Um, who's not that? But the, you know, if, if you were to give feedback, some of that might unintentionally be reassuring, even though you might not have said to yourself, I'm going to give this person reassurance. It might have just, some the way you said it, what you said, might have just come out that way great you you got one up on me this time you won i slipped oops but we move on but even then like maybe it's reassuring maybe it's just comforting Mm. right maybe it's comforting to hear that something went well Mm -hmm. i would say that it becomes reassuring when you pursue it more than once we keep leaning into it Mm -hmm. right okay so anything else you would like to add to this I mean, there's something hanging on my mind that I'll probably remember in like 15 seconds when we start talking about something else. But I mean, in germ- just in terms of emphasizing, yes. again, like not everything is reassurance. And by treating everything as though it is reassurance, you're actually denying yourself from some very important things. Okay. Right? You're denying yourself from getting support. You are denying yourself maybe from feeling less alone. Mm-hmm. You are denying yourself from learning the things that are important to know as you progress on this path. So in a sense, being open to making a mistake. Heck, even that, right? Because what are we... Ooh, I remember it was about expectancy violation. That might have been about 20 seconds. Yeah. (laughs) It was about that time frame, right? Like, I was spot on. I'll I'll go back and Um, check the tape. (laughs) But... uh, now I forget what I was just in the middle of saying. <laughs> uh, all right. It'll come back. I promise. Yeah. But anyway. Okay. So going back to the inhibitory learning piece. Yes. Um, with inhibitory learning, we have a large focus on expectancy violation, right? What did you predict would happen? What actually happened? And I remember earlier on in my training, 
I got fearful that it's like, well, if I'm pointing that out, that's reassurance that nothing bad happened. Mm-hmm. Right? So again, there is a difference there. One can become compulsive if I'm reminding myself of that over and over again. However, the point of exposure is to learn something. Mm-hmm. Right? The point of exposure is to learn that whatever I am afraid of is not actually as likely as my mind says that it is. The point of learning and exposure is that, you know, that distress is not perpetual. It does come down all by itself. Mm-hmm. The learning is I can cope with the situation. You know, even if that distress doesn't change, even if something bad does happen, I can cope with it. Right? Like exposure is all about learning. And it is not reassuring to learn and receive the information that, huh, what I predicted didn't pan out. Weird. Right. And and that's within that to take that even one step further. Yeah, it didn't happen. It doesn't mean that it'll never happen, but it really pokes holes in the thought that it's likely to happen or a certainty that it'll happen. Exactly. In the words of the great John Hirschfield, who spoke on this once, it is learning the difference between probability and possibility. Mm-hmm. Right. Anything is possible. Mm hmm. And through our treatment, we are learning more what is probable. Right. You know, to tolerate the possible and aligning what we do with what is probable. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Um, but, you know, the human brain sucks to, at statistics. <laughs> I mean, tell that to the University of Waterloo students who a large portion of them specialize in math. I will. <laughs> but they're not listening to this podcast. Um, probably not. No, probably not. Um, but yeah, there's a, I, I have a whole episode talking about how the, the our, our human brain sucks at just understanding statistics. I even, I, my, one of my favorite questions to ask clients is like, all right, let's say you get into a car accident. Like what's the likelihood that you're going to get into like this bad things going to happen. They're like, like 1%, right? Like 1% is a lot. If you do that, if you, if it's a 1% chance of getting into a car accident, that means you get into three and a half car accidents a year. But you're not, probably. Things are unlikely. Even if we think it's a small number, it's likely a smaller number than we even think. But again, when we have dumb I'm, I'm not a statistician, but what one thing that I do know, right? Like, so if we took gambling, for example, mm-hmm. let's say it's like a what a one in fifty two chance that you land on a number. Uh-huh. It's a one in fifty two chance every single time. Mm-hmm those stats do not compound upon each other, right? So if you do it 52 times, like you're not going to land on it a certain number of times, whatever the stat is, because it is one in 52 every single time, right? So that's the reason that if you drive, you know, 400 times a year, you're not getting into four accidents because every time you drive, it is a 1% chance. Mm -hmm. And those chances do not compound upon each other. So it's even far less than my dumb number. Oh, yeah. Ugh. Again, I defer to the University of Waterloo grads. Well, if they want to call in and they want to talk about statistics of dying in a car wreck, I'm more than happy to have them on. So. I'll reach out. I got someone. All right. So um, so I just wanted to briefly, if it, unless there's something else that you wanted to touch on within feedback, information, coping, and support. No, I mean, I think all of all of the important points have been hit, right? These things are different than reassurance. These things are important. Mm-hmm. Right. And again, there is also flexibility and importance in learning that like mistakes happen sometimes. Right. You know, okay. Yeah. Maybe it turns out the function of that question was reassurance. What can I learn from this? Mm -hmm. Right. This is not a catastrophe that leads me to relapse. This is, huh. Okay. What can I learn here? Right. And, and we can just keep on going through it. Mm -hmm. Just keep dealing with it. We know a little bit more from that experience than we did before then. Right, right. So, so kind of kind of related to this, and we'll just kind of t- touch on this, but this is another pet peeve that I think some therapists have seen. I'm sure you've seen with some of your clients. I've certainly seen with some of my clients. And it's the idea of doing, of, of overdoing exposures, of doing exposures that not that not as assigned, not that we've discussed, but saying, all right, well, we're going to do this exposure, but you know what? Because I want to get better, and I want to get better right now, I'm going to do the most intense, crazy, ridiculous version of that exposure. Um, and 
first off, have you seen clients do this or have this mindset to have or mindset? Oh, of course. Right. Whether it's like, I am going to just like barrel through and get fast as quick as possible, or I'm going to do all of my exposures perfectly to make sure that I can get better as quickly as possible. Right. Right. Now, one of my one of my clients in particular who did this they they would call they, they they were open about this they knew that they were doing this they called them compulsion exposures otherwise known as composures <laughs> i think that word means something different but carry on it sure does but <laughs> it um doesn't matter in this situation the whole point is that they would say i would we'd be going up the hierarchy and talking about certain things and they'd say and i'd say well let's we're going to focus on this well what if i do this and it was and it was their way of it was their way of proving to themselves that they are that they can do it because if they can do this higher level one well they certainly can do this lower level one right but ultimately they never got around to doing that lower level one and that was where they got stuck every single time so while they were trying to get better faster they eventually they ultimately were just shooting themselves in the foot because they're trying they were doing a compulsion. They were giving themselves reassurance that they're going to be okay and they're going to be fine when ultimately they weren't actually facing that fear in the moment. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I guess, do you have any examples uh, from, from any of the clients that you've had in which they've done this? I mean, I'm definitely the one that immediately pops up to mind is after he had a very successful course of treatment again, he's like, I have to make sure I do an exposure every single day. Because if I don't do an exposure every single day, then I'm going to relapse. Mm-hmm. Right. So again, kind of the doing exposures perfectly in the service of trying to avoid a particular fear. Right. Right. Or also people talking about it's like, well, I'll, you know, I'll do this exposure, but this exposure is not big enough. You know, just kind of like what you were saying before. It's like this exposure is going to be a waste because it's not big enough. Right. Right. And, and that's, Again, it's shooting ourselves in the foot because it's saying whatever it's you're you're still avoiding you're still avoiding this one exposure when it's we, we can kind of take exposures as they come, especially if we're doing kind of a, a more bouncing around free form hierarchy hierarchy um, where it's just a list of things as opposed to the trajectory of the exposures where we're just going to pick one. And that's the one we're going to do today, regardless of if it's giant or if it's tiny. We're going to face it because that's kind of how life gives us exposures, the natural exposures, right? As I've said, like our anxiety doesn't care that it's, you know, on the first of the month, we get low level exposures. But once it gets towards like 28, 29, 30, like those are the severe ones, but it resets right back at the top of the month. Like, whew, good, right? Life, life does not progress in a hierarchy, so why should treatment Right. And that is that is the theory behind it. And I, I see the argument of going back and forth between those. But um, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure people will disagree, but that's fine. I don't care. Um, but the but but the whole point is that um, if, if someone is out there and if you out there, listener, are kind of thinking, you know what, I, I'm kind of doing that. Or if I enter treatment, like I need to do the most important thing. First off, I think there's a bit of machismo, a little bit of um, I. I'm, I'm losing the word here. It's it's trying to just be a little too ballsy that is, un, that See, is unnecessary. I think going for the top of the list, like it can be helpful for some people. Ooh. You know, if I if I take my spider example for a second, it's like, you know what? And, you know, back I did look at some pictures and I was like, you know, what's really going to move me forward, though, is like having one touch my skin. You know, so as much as that was a bigger exposure. I could have done other things along the way. It's like, I know the value in doing this thing, or even just like going to the pet store and looking at a tarantula that can work very well for some people, but it can also very much not right. Because when you are going to that big exposure, there's so many other things to consider, right? Like, are you actually allowing all of the feelings to show up? Mm-hmm. Are you opening up to those feelings with willingness, right? Are you are you approaching it with flexibility, mm-hmm. right? Are you doing this because it's like, I have to, to make sure that this works? Or are you leaving some space for exploration and learning from experience, right? Because also one of the things that I tell people from doing exposures is that they could learn that one was too hard for them at this time. Mm-hmm. 
And so that's when, you know, it's like, okay, we learned that in this exposure. So we scale it back. Right. So I would say it's like, yeah, there's some people who can absolutely dive into the deep end and come out swimming. Mm -hmm. However, again, it depends on like, how are you doing it? Mm -hmm. I think we've we're going to revisit that same word of function. Mm -hmm. Right. Is it are they taking that next step? I've certainly had clients where, you know, we talk about doing an exposure and they go, you know, I think I'm ready for this next one instead. Right. And they're doing Mm -hmm. it out of risk. They're doing it out of excitement. Like, I kind of want to push the boundaries of things and they're ready to go for it rather than looking at that one and saying, no, no, I need I need to do this higher one because that's going to prove something or that's Mm -hmm. going to that's going to do something that's kind of speaking to something underneath it. Because right. that's that's going to get me better as fast as possible, right. right? But then in like in the as fast as possible model, they're like white knuckling their way through it, which right. is counterproductive to recovery, right? Recovery comes from willingness. Heck, we have the data su- to support this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when it's like I have to do this exposure because I have to get be- get better as quickly as possible, then that's contraindicated. Mm-hmm. Right, because you're not doing it in the therapeutic way that comes with recovery. Right, right. I've certainly also heard these stories of. Um, have I seen these stories? I've certainly heard this. I'll just go with that. Where someone goes, "All right, I'm starting treatment. I want to do the highest thing right now, the biggest thing." Right, and we slow somebody down. We're going to try to, you know, have them go through the process, do a little bit of education first before just like going to the biggest thing. They insist all right, they're going to go to the biggest thing. And what do they do? They freak themselves out. Their anxiety goes through the roof. They didn't know what they were getting into. They lose their ever-loving mind and they leave. And they never come back to therapy. Mm-hmm. And they've yeah. learned all of a sudden, doing exposures is dangerous and scary. Doing exposures is not something that's going to make me feel good or better. It's going to make me only feel worse. Right? There's a reason that we would go through things in a I mean, this maybe go back to the, the, the linear model of exposures. There might be an argument for starting in a certain way and then gaining momentum to move up, as opposed to saying, I'm just going to start with the biggest one. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, it, I've said it before, there can be a different strokes for different folks sort of thing, but there is also a, a general approach that we look at. And that's one of the reasons why we would hope that someone is going to work with a clinician who's practiced this and can kind of see and work with someone to see, are they someone who can handle the up and down? Do they need to start real small and kind of get their sea legs to start moving up first? Mm-hmm. I mean, the metric that I use is like the, what is challenging and manageable, right? Like what is challenging enough that gets you activated, gets you into contact with that fear, with the urge to do a compulsion. And then is manageable in the sense that you are willing to feel what shows up and willing to resist those compulsions. Right. Right. Kind of like, especially at the beginning of treatment, identifying that sweet spot, because I want you to walk out with a sense of accomplishment. Mm -hmm. Right. Maybe after you got a few of those under your belt and if you really go for it and again, like, Oh, that was too hard. Okay. What did we learn from the fact that this was too hard? And then we scale it back. But also as you're talking, right. And um, another client came to mind who came into our intensive outpatient program was like super gung ho did went through all of his highest exposures within two weeks doing super well discharged you know like back to the function that he wanted looked like a pretty awesome success story right came back to me after a relapse and i said what happened you know like you're in that program for such a short time you made all these amazing gains and he's like what happened is that i wasn't feeling anything while i was doing it I was just rushing through. I was doing it. I wasn't feeling anything. Mm-hmm. Right. So then, yes, it's like, I remember us as staff being like, we got to slow him down. Right. Like we got to make sure that he's actually like coming into contact with what he's afraid of. But even then, you know, he managed to dupe us kind of show us that he was feeling rather than actually feeling. Right. And he realized after the fact that that was actually his downfall. He didn't dupe you. He duped himself. Both, probably, right? Because it's like, I mean, he didn't do me to the extent that I wasn't telling my other kind of my clinic, my fellow clinicians to be like, we got to keep an eye on him to make sure that he's feeling right. But again, it's kind of like he showed us what he knew we wanted to see. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like you said, he was duping himself, right? Mm-hmm. Telling himself that he was feeling, but not actually doing the feeling. 
right? And so this is, yes, the danger of whether it's the client pushing themselves too hard or the clinician pushing them too hard, right? Yeah, for some folks, maybe that works. Mm-hmm. But for the vast majority of people, right, it's like we actually actively have to slow them down so that we can help them learn how to feel, learn how to be willing to have what shows up. Right, right. So, and, and for anybody out there listening who's who's kind of going through this I, I hope the point is being made that as you're doing exposures, the whole point of what you're trying to do is to feel the feels, to feel what's there, not just to do the action, but to be open to that experience and to kind of say, this is going to be okay. And this experience of garbage or anxiety or frustration or whatever else is, happens to be there in the swirl of nonsense is okay. As we progress. The classic, the yeah, the classic adage, the only way out is through. I like it. I mean, right? Like the only way out of these feelings controlling your life is to feel the feelings. The only way out is through. Right. I don't see any reason to add anything else to it then. Is there anything else that you'd like to add to our conversation? Any other pet peeves? Oof. I mean, what other pet peeves do you have? I mean, other than other than Beatles related Christmas music. It's the worst. Ooh. I'm gonna I'm gonna die on that hill. They make the worst <laughs> Christmas music on earth. Fight me on this. Go ahead. No, I will have to take your word for it. Okay. Although, I mean, war is over. <laughs> yep, they fixed it. Good job, Beatles. <laughs> no, but I do have a pet peeve in that when specifically clinicians treat these thoughts as though they are serious as their mind tells them that they are like, you know, OCD wants to tell us like, these thoughts are so serious. And then, you know, it's like treating those thoughts as though they are serious, you know, whereas I want to teach my folks, like these thoughts are objectively hilarious. The idea that my mom that loves her kid could actually intentionally hurt them. Like that's actually kind of funny. (laughs) Right. So it's like treating these thoughts as though they are so serious is exactly what the mind wants. Mm. But we need to treat them for what they are, which is, again, like objectively hilarious. Right. Right. I, I totally agree. Oh, God, was it? I used to give an example of like the, the only difference between somebody's thoughts and Stephen King is that Stephen King writes and sells his thoughts for millions of dollars. I've said the same thing. It's like, imagine what an author or a movie director could do with the thoughts that you have. Right. Right. And... I mean, and also to that to that degree, like, you know, no one is concerned about the writers of Saw, right? We're not going like, oh, my God, that was through their, that went through their mind. <gasps> we should watch out for those fellas. Like, right. we, we, go, no, it's like, we go, when's the next one coming out? Creative genius. Like, how did he think of that stuff? And it's like, our folks think of that kind of stuff all the time. They're just not monetizing it. Right. So what we're saying is everybody out there, write this stuff down, sell it. Make some, make some cash out of this. But yeah. I, I, I also really like this approach. In fact, um, I, <laughs> um, I, I gave a talk with a couple of other folks at the um, last IOCDF on this subject. It's just how do, you, how do you take your thoughts less seriously and perhaps even have some fun with those thoughts? Yeah, well, one of my favorite ways, let me, in on, let, me let you in on a little secret, um, right? Because like, I really like to teach my folks, let's take a step back from these thoughts and see them what they're really but they really are, which is words and syllables that go through your head, right? And so one way to take a, take a step back from these thoughts is choose a pop song, like something real poppy. Are you, are you asking me for pop music? Yeah, just a pop song. Name one. I could find I, a Beatles song, whatever. <laughs> I don't think I can name a Beatles song. Hey Jude. That's a Beatles song, hey Jude. right? Yeah, all right. So pick Hey Jude. You know, okay. it's like when I'm talking to my clients, maybe they would do a little Britney Spears. Maybe we do a little Spice Girls action. And to help them take a step back from these thoughts as being so serious, I'm like, all right, let's take your intrusive thoughts and those become the lyrics. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's like taking all of your scary thoughts uh-huh. and making them the lyrics to the tune of Hey Jude. Can, can, you, can you give us an example? And we'd like to hear your best singing, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. Which theme would you like me to work from? Um, uh, Dying of COVID seems to be popular. That was one that came to my mind, 
All right. In the tune of Britney Spears. Oops, I might have COVID. I might be in hospital on a ventilator. Ooh, baby, baby. Yup. I'm going to die. <laughs> and I, it carries on. I think this is fantastic. And I, I got to say, no one else gets to enjoy the dance moves that also went along with that. Because there was. <laughs> there was a lot of shoulder movement. There was a lot of um, a lot of pointing. I will say that. There's a lot of pointing going on. Um, but it was still better than I was going to be able to do. So fantastic. <laughs> I mean, if you wanted to follow up with a Hey Jude, I don't think your listeners would say no to it. <laughs> I well, I I wonder if ASCAP would have something to say about that. They're going to want some royalties, and from which that I don't really Shoot. want to give them. Shoot! Don't tell Brittany. <laughs> well, if Brittany, if you're listening to this, I would also love to have you on this show to talk about <laughs> just whatever you want, whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I I like this approach. Now, that being said, we've <laughs> we. Um, you can also land in some hot water with some folks about about having this approach in terms of not validating the pain that somebody is going through because taking this approach can sound inva- personally invalidating. So there, there there is an approach. I think that folks, I hope that the folks I work with start taking a, a more irreverent perspective on their thoughts um, because, again, we, we, we need to start separating us from those thoughts, from, you know, th- that these thoughts reflect who it is that we are or that we are OCD or that we are anxiety, that we're not. We're a person experiencing thoughts and feelings that we, we don't need to hold up as dangerous or scary or important or whatever, they are thoughts and feelings that we can have. I think that taking that perspective helps to bring it down. But I think sometimes in therapy, we do need to work through some of that initial, maybe uh, identification that people have with it. Oh, absolutely. And like my I'm teaching, you know, my first year clinical psychology graduate students, and this concept of humor is just like absolutely blowing their minds, right? And they ask me those same questions. It's like, well, what if, you know, somebody is in like complete like distress or, you know, it's like, do you just come in singing Britney Spears to them? It's like, no, of course not. Of course Depends not. on the situation. Right. Right. I'm not just, if somebody is crying because of the shame that they're experiencing about the thoughts of hurting their baby. I'm not just going to be like, time to sing a song. Right. You totally might murder them today. Let's look at other pictures of dead babies. Have you heard some dead baby jokes? It's like, who knows? Maybe far along in our therapy relationship, that is the approach I would take because that is the relationship we have developed. However, what's more likely is I'm going to meet them where they're at in terms of the pain that they're experiencing. Right. So, yeah, no, it's my goal in life and treatment is to help people, again, kind of like take a step back from these thoughts and learn to see them as objectively hilarious. However, that does not mean that I'm not also making space for helping them when they, you know, when they are struggling. Right. Right. I think that 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 again goes back to the mucky mess that therapy is, that it's not a one size fits all and it's not as um, uh, manualized as it might feel or sound. That, that, it is yeah. It is not as straightforward as the instructions on your box of craft dinner. Unfortunately. You can, get, you can get spicy with those directions too. Mix it up. So, anyways, I, I know that you've got things, I've got things, but uh, I do appreciate your uh, your time. If um, if folks have follow-ups for you or would like to ask you any particular questions, would you be willing to come on the show again to uh, answer some of those? Oh, yeah. I think we could have a great time. <laughs> Awesome. Well, um, I will. Uh, if there's information to put up about you or things that you'd like to have up, I'll put them up on the the, uh, uh, the episode page. But uh, again, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, thank you for having me on. I had a lot of fun. Absolutely. So how'd it go? Terrible. It was awful. <laughs> I told, I told you I'd tell you that. I told you that on the podcast 20 minutes ago. So No, I mean, yeah, I think I think it went well. It seemed like a really kind of fun conversation. It went great. It went great. Um, I, I think that, I mean, conversations like this, I, I don't think they ever go bad. It's, it's, I think what it also illustrated is kind of the... I think that there, it, it illustrated that there can be a, a number of different ways to talk about kind of the same thing, and I think it can. I think that can be really helpful for a mm-hmm. lot of folks. Um, 
you know, I'm also open to being wrong at times and learning too. But there, there's there's also this hearing hearing the same thing for different perspectives, right? Well, it's so funny along those lines too. You know, it's like moving from residential to typical outpatient practice. Mm-hmm. It's like, wow, I underestimated the value in having like a whole team saying the same thing, but just like differently. Right. You know, right. like there is, yeah, it's like we're all speaking to the same concepts but we all bring a slightly different lens to it Mm -hmm. somebody hears it in those different ways and like you know maybe it finally clicks sorry you just oh yeah because you're talking about all those names in the book on the shelf i didn't mention it because it kind of didn't fit nicely into our conversation but like the abramowitz's 10 steps book Uh like he has a whole section on coping statements i was gonna mention i do i do a approach called the reassurance card Oh yeah, I've heard of those. I I like him, and for some clients, it's really helpful. Like, hold on, what does your reassurance card look like? It's a reassurance card from the way I describe it to clients. It's it's truths about themselves or truths about anxiety. So it it's kind of the attaboys, but it's kind of things like this anxiety will always go away. It can mm-hmm. be I've handled bigger tasks before, and I can probably handle this right. Um, I add probably in there for obvious reasons. Um, but it's just general things or things like, you know, um, like if, if, if worse comes to, if, if maybe like if worse comes to worse, you can always have a Xanax or like depending on what the, what the client issue is. But basically to say, I'm overwhelmed. I just need a, a reminder that I can do this. And see, there's the language piece again, right? Because I would not use the word reassurance there and call it a coping card. Right. And, you and, know, there's, there's no reassurance that, you know, like this thing that I am uncertain about, uncertain about is 100% certain, right? Rather, it is these statements are helping me move towards the hard thing. Yeah. And so I think, again, it's just this like overuse, blanketed use of the word reassurance for things that are actually different. Right. And, you, and you're probably right. I mean, even when I use the, when I say reassurance, the only reason I call them reassurance card is because that's, that's how I heard it. Mm-hmm. Someone taught it to me, calling it a reassurance card, and you know, old habits die hard, right? So, um, but yeah, I mean, it's kind of that same thing, and it's encouraging to know that I haven't read that that um, ten steps book, but I think someone just posted that, that on the Facebook group a couple days ago for the first time mm-hmm. to no, me. That's good. So. It's on the shelf. <laughs> Side note, though, if you can splice in that thing on like the reassurance cards, I think you totally should because that was like an awesome little snippet. Fair enough. I can do that. So yeah, I don't. I don't know what kind of wizardry you can I'll, command. I, I'll see what I can do to make it sound reasonable, but I'll try. <laughs> I'll try to tie that in. So, anyways, well, I, I will release you back to the wild. I know you've got things, but um, I, I do appreciate all. Your- all right, everybody. Thank you so much for making it through that episode and the little tag at the very end. So if you have questions about this um, this conversation or if there are things that you want to add or you have disagreements with something that we had said, go to fearcastpodcast.com and you can uh, message me that question or that point over there. I certainly want to hear about it. Um, also, as you heard in the episode, Dr. Plankett Woods was said that she was happy to join us for future episodes. So if you have a specific question for her about something that she had said or alluded to or talked about, she'd be more than happy to jump on. So go over to fearcastpodcast.com and send me that message or request over there. So everybody, please remember that the FearCast is not substitute for psychotherapy. If you have questions about treatment, you can go over to, uh, or if you have questions or need a little bit of help in your treatment, go over to fearcastpodcast.com, go to the find help link there and there's going to be some information that might point you in the right direction so until next time everybody take a risk challenge yourself and don't take your brain too seriously bye